Hello, everyone. Today, we are discussing the paper, Developing an Algorithm for Optimizing Care of Elderly Patients with Glioblastoma. We have Dr. Manish Agi uh, joining us. He is a neurosurgeon scientist uh, specialized on tumor care and tumor development, and also a brain surgeon specialized in uh, brain tumor surgery. And he's the senior author of this article, and he is joining us from uh, UCSF. Uh, we also have the faculty member, uh, Dr. Bakudarian, uh, joining us from uh, the Pacific Neuroscience Institute. Uh, he is also specialized in brain tumor surgery, minimal invasive fibrosis, and facial pain. And we have our CNS fellow, Dr. Hanif von Trisport, uh, Louisiana. We will start with a summary of the paper by Dr. Agi, please. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share the work with you all. Um, this is a, this paper, again, entitled Developing an Algorithm for Optimizing Care of Elderly Patients with Glioblastoma, was born out of the question that we ask in a busy uh, brain tumor practice caring for a lot of patients with glioblastoma um, as to the uh, impact of age on patient prognosis um, and in evaluating elderly patients with suspected glioblastoma preoperatively, are there factors that we can use to stratify those who are good surgical candidates from um, those whose um, neurocognitive status or likely outcomes would um, reduce the benefit of resection relative to biopsy? And in order to investigate this question, we retrospectively analyzed 554 patients undergoing uh, procedures for newly diagnosed glioblastoma at our institution over a six-year interval. And of these patients, we defined elderly as those older, above or older than 65 years old, and that ended up being 218 patients, or 39% of the cohort. And so we began with some basic comparisons of elderly versus non-elderly patients. We found that Elderly patients were more likely to receive stereotactic biopsy rather than craniotomy, with one in four elderly patients undergoing just a biopsy. They were more likely to have a um, medical comorbidity, twice as common in elderly patients compared to non-elderly at 40 versus 20%. And, um, and those were the pre-procedural um, distinctions between the groups. Post-procedural, we, we found that the older patients, the elderly patients, had a higher rate of post-operative morbidities. Uh, overall morbidities were 25% compared to 14% in non-elderly. And they were less likely to go on to receive the adjuvant chemotherapy, the temozolomide, um, that is standard of care for this disease, um, and uh, also were less likely to receive a radiographic gross total resection of their tumor. So with this in mind, we drill down in more detail, and statistically, we used a Framingham approach to identify and risk stratify our elderly patients, and we briefly, we assigned a, a number of points, one, two, or four, to preoperative factors that were associated with decreased survival in a multivariate analysis, and so these points um, led to a scoring system that we designated a GESS or GESS or glioblastoma elderly scoring system. And this score was calculated based on the factors that I mentioned were associated with survival, which were specifically tumor size, the presence of a subtotal resection, um, preoperative weakness, the Charleston comorbidity score, and um, the patient's age as well. And so we, we assigned one point if the patient had 
had a had any comorbidity, a comorbidity score greater than zero, a subtotal resection, or a tumor larger than three centimeters, two points if a patient had preoperative weakness or or more than one comorbidity or a tumor greater than five centimeters or age older than 75, and the highest scoring was four points given to patients over age 85. And so we found that patients with three to five points had a median survival of just um, nine months compared to patients with zero to two points where their survival was 17 months. Um, and patients who had six to nine points were the worst group. Their survival was um, no different than those undergoing biopsy alone. And, and that sort of brought us back to the original question, which was the goal of identifying a subset of patients who are unlikely to benefit from a craniotomy. And we found that this high-risk cohort with scores in the range of six to nine points uh, was indeed this group where their survival from a, from a craniotomy was just 4.5 months compared to 2.7 months if they had a biopsy. Um, and so, ha you know, this was essentially a um, process where we ended up getting to the, the goal that we needed to do, which was to sort of begin to identify, admittedly, within the limitations of a retrospective analysis, uh, a subset of patients for whom craniotomy was offering little benefit. So that's the brief summary, and I'll open it up to discussion and question at this point. Very good. Thank you so much. Dr. Bakudarian, do you want to lead away with some questions, please? Certainly. Dr. Hagi, thank you so much for putting together this uh, manuscript. It really is a, an important article as it answers questions that are really real-life questions that we face day-to-day -day in people who take care of patients with glioblastoma. Uh, the questions uh, that we have are, are really related to how this, this information implements into uh, clinical practice. So now that you have uh, validated this data retrospectively, have you implemented it into your day-to-day -day practice at UCSF? And also, have you found uh, a need for a prospective analysis of this data moving forward? Yeah, I think before um, implementing, because the consequences of um, converting this to clinical decision-making would obviously be significant, we want to err on the side of caution. And so we're working towards enrolling patients prospectively and validating the study in a prospective manner. That is particularly important because while some of these variables are unlikely to be affected by, such as tumor size or age, are obviously not affected by retrospective versus prospective analysis, the documentation of comorbidities, which did factor into our scoring system, um, could be influenced by um, suboptimal chart keeping in a retrospective manner. And so prospective study is needed because of variables like that, as well as um, documentation of preoperative weakness, which um, is, uh, would benefit from prospective enrollment. And so the goal is to, um, and we're estimating that the, the necessary sample size will be comparable to what we had in the retrospective analysis. So, it, but, um, you know, would hopefully prospectively be able to get to that question within um, at two to three years, I'd say. Excellent. And uh, you mentioned in your discussion that uh, given the current population, uh, the MGMT methylation status, as well as some of the other biomarkers that have been associated with prognosis weren't assessed. But do you find that that does play a role? Because there are some patients that certainly can have some of these biomarkers uh, in this age group, although not as frequent. It's a great point, and I think, um, fortunately, when it gets to the decision of with an older patient whether to perform a biopsy versus a craniotomy, um, that information 
cannot be available ahead of time, um, you know, there isn't really a imaging biomarker for the for the molecular markers. Um, so that can, that makes it challenging to be able to incorporate that into the preoperative decision making. But uh, but it is a consideration, and you're absolutely right that those markers do show up at a non-trivial rate in the older patients and um, and do need to be accounted for. Um, another, un, an, another area of uncertainty is, um, you know, you mentioned MGMT and Temidar, but a number of these patients when they're older undergo short accelerated um, radiation courses compared to the younger patients. And there's studies validating that approach, um, some pretty good papers on that. In our practice, we don't yet have a stratification as to when to implement that and when to not. I will say that certainly above 85, we, we have found that our radiation oncologists more often than not use the short course of radiation. Um, and I would say even above age 75, but above age 65, it is um, truly uh, provider dependent. And I think that may contribute to the outcomes of these patients. And it's a non-surgical variable, but it's a variable that we need to be cognizant of when we manage these patients as surgeons. That's a great point, And that was my next question. So I'm glad you answered that. And one additional question for me, um, and you, you basically have somewhat answered this, but uh, maybe framing it in a different light. You mentioned that uh, the patients who have had the biopsy versus the high-risk patients that have a score between six and nine had pretty much similar and poor outcomes. So moving forward, do you find that uh, in your practice you will limit these patients to a biopsy alone if you can predict their, their risk score? Or alternatively, have you looked back to see why the, there was a subset of patients that had a higher rate of biopsy alone and uh, what factors were in, involved in the decision-making to biopsy those patients rather than to resect them? It's a great question. So we, we looked at, um, it, you know, you obviously can't, in a retrospective study, you can't, uh, you can only, you're limited into figuring out the decision-making, but as best as we could piece together, the biggest decision-making in biopsy versus resection were, were the same things that would apply to younger patients, which is um, accessibility of the lesion, um, the surgeon's impression of what their likely extent of resection would be, um, as well as, you know, whether the lesion would get a patient through radiation without swelling in the setting of a biopsy only. And those considerations you know, for those for when we manage young patients, apply there as well. Um, there was perhaps some possibility that in a borderline decision making, that age could be sort of the tiebreaker, if you will. But it it didn't seem like in the chart analysis, at least at UCSF, that that age was entering into the decision making for biopsy versus resect. But with the with the caveat that the older patients were undergoing a higher rate of biopsy, so there must be some way it's entering into it, but we certainly didn't see any charting to suggest, oh, you know, we're going to be offering this patient a biopsy because of age. But my guess is that's not the kind of thing that gets documented as as readily as saying, well, this lesion is deep and not safely resectable, which we all are often putting in writing. It It's an interesting sort of side note of how, re, we, how age influences our decision-making, but 
and yet we don't chart it. It's like we're afraid to acknowledge that elephant in the room, when, and that's uh, something that's been described in other aspects of medical care where it's influencing provider decision-making, and yet they're not having an honest discussion with the patient or even charting um, that it is that it is influencing their decision making and and that's unfortunate because I mean it's it's most patients understand their age and they're not you know they're not they're they're willing to understand that that's a consideration but it'd be better if people could actually record sort of what they're deciding um, so that we can all understand and that would make retrospective studies more um, meaningful too uh, great points. Uh, perhaps Dr. Hanif would like to ask some questions as well at this time. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm Ramal. I'm one of the six-year residents in uh, Treeport. My question is uh, uh, with respect to uh, post-resection uh, morbidity. You mentioned in the paper that post-resection morbidity is associated with decreased survival in elderly patients with glioblastoma. And uh, one of the major post-operative morbidities mentioned is uh, delirium. And that's particularly uh, exaggerated in uh, elderly patients. Uh, it seems uh, from your paper that if delirium is managed better postoperatively, we can improve uh, outcomes of patients, uh, elderly patients who have uh, surgery for glioblastoma. So I just wanted to ask you if you've uh, employed any uh, strategies uh, postoperatively to better manage delirium in elderly patients. It's a great question, and. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, we actually have a, a paper on delirium in GBM just a month or two ahead of this paper in the same journal in neurosurgery um, with a slightly separate patient cohort. But um, we haven't employed any um, – the means we've employed for delirium are, are fairly um, logical, you know, in terms of minimizing steroids um, preoperatively we, in patients, particularly the elderly who might be prone to delirium. We um, we get pretty good assessment of, um, if possible, neuropsych testing to sort of drill down on medications they may be on that could predispose and minimizing sedation for MRIs. Getting a perfect MRI is not worth um, pharmacologic delirium, so we'll sometimes, you know, tolerate a, an MRI and someone moving or even forego it just to get them out of the ICU in the hospital. So you have to sort of not be rigid in your management. You know, sometimes in younger patients, we reflexively put them on a, you know, a four-week steroid taper or, you know, sedate them to get an MRI. And, and these things need to be skipped sometimes in the older patients in order to expedite their care. I mean, we actually have a lower bar to get them out of the ICU, feeling that, you know, an extra 10 points of systolic blood pressure is not worth having that person's sleep-wake cycle disrupted for another night in an ICU. So these are sort of some of the areas where we've had to be more flexible in order to um, get elderly patients into a more comfortable environment where they can neurologically return to baseline quicker. Because the, the issue is that if they the longer they're off their neurologic baseline, the the less likely it is that somebody will implement adjuvant therapy or at least delay it, and, and that's where their outcomes start to get affected by delirium. Thank you. Thank you for that. Those are great management uh, uh, pointers uh, with respect to post-op uh, delirium. My other question, uh, I was curious about why uh, an association between preoperative seizures and uh, improved survival exists in non-elderly patients. These are patients younger than 65, and why is such an association then not present in elderly patients? Yeah, it's a great question. So in younger patients, it's always been felt that um, preoperative seizures brings to attention lesions before they 
reach critical size and at a stage when they're still going to be resectable um, and, you know, where they're not deep and they're sort of closer to the cortical surface. As to why that would not be the case in older patients, it's not entirely clear, It, um, but it may be that just the nature of the cortex and the white matter in the older patients um, makes it so that the lesions do need to be larger, that, that, this, that sort of seizure as a early diagnosis component um, is now lost and seizure instead becomes a late symptom in older patients as well. Hard to be certain of that be one possible explanation. It's just a curious little association and thank you for, for explaining that. And uh, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned a, a, a trial that's uh, currently in an international phase three uh, clinical trial phase. Uh, it's regarding the uh, efficacy of hypofractionated radiotherapy alone versus hypofractionated radiotherapy with uh, Temodar uh, in particularly elderly uh, patients. Uh, are you able to tell us a little bit more about this trial? There have uh, been a number of studies over the years. I think the um, looking at hypofractionated radiation in the elderly, the, um, the earlier this year in March, the New England Journal released their study um, of a short course of radiation with Temidar in um, older patients, and that was from the Canadian group. It essentially, you know, validated the approach, but you're absolutely right that that would need to be looked at in a more randomized fashion. The Canadian group, you know, was estimating a median overall survival of a little over nine months when you added Temidar to hyperfractionate radiation versus eight months with hyperfractionate radiation alone. But I believe there's going to be attempts to look at this in a larger cohort at more sites than than just that. But that was certainly a adequately powered phase three study, and uh, they defined elderly the same way as we did, 65 years and older. They did comment, though, that the benefit of chemo radiation, um, not surprisingly correlated with MGMT methylation status. They said the, the benefit was observed in unmethylated cases, but the, the p-value did barely failed to meet statistical significance. I would consider this to be somewhat validatory for the approach. You know, I think the part of it that I found, at least my recollection of that study, is that it was very focused on the survival aspects of it, and much like any other clinical trial, my, you know, I'm, not, I'm not, by no means a study author for that study, but what I had found myself wanting to know more about from that study was, you know, okay, this, you know, there's some argument to be made that this approach is not hurting patients as far as tumor control, but the what they don't get at is the presumption is that hypofractionated is is gentler for older brains than the standard fractionated approach, and yet that remains a presumption. You know, it'd be nice to see that also validated. Um, and I know others. I'm not a radiation oncologist by any means. I think the idea of hypofractionated has been borne out of other studies. It'd be nice to have seen that embedded into the phase three trial in some capacity where maybe some sort of neurocognitive or neuropsych testing, uh, pre-radiation and post-radiation or something where they could have lent some credence to the um, idea that, yes, not only is this good for the tumor, but it's um, not hurting the patients cognitively compared to um, historical um, neurocognitive outcomes seen with conventional fractionation. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. My, my last question, uh, uh, 
perhaps is a, is a short one and perhaps may not be as straightforward to answer, but I, I wanted to ask you if uh, there is an absolute age cutoff uh, beyond which offering a resection to an elderly patient is not beneficial. That's a great question. You have a number in mind, perhaps, that you may use clinically, just as a gestalt or from experience. Uh, you know, that's a great question. Um, the uh, the short answer is that we don't use a strict cutoff. I have um, personally had a handful of patients in this series as well as elsewhere, um, as well as after this series was completed in their mid-80s undergo a craniotomy, but the patients that I speak of were sort of tumors in the two to three centimeter range where we kind of got them in and out of surgery within two to three hours and neurocognitively they did fine. I think their survival wasn't great. It does get at the fact that the elderly patients, even even the ones with a very bad risk score in our series, I mean, technically their survival was you know, 4.4 months compared to 2.9 with a biopsy. And so my feeling is, at least for now, that if you can get them through a resection and not have the morbidity, then, you know, there's a chance they'll do better. And in a worst case scenario, you're not hurting them. The, to me, the, in terms of the specific factors, more so than age, I personally, based on my practice, it's the comorbidities. So, you know, not much like any other aspects of healthcare, not every 85-year-old is, is built the same way. And um, I do think the comorbidities enter into it um, for sure. You know, an 85-year-old with a pacemaker and uh, diabetes who's going to have brittle blood sugars on steroids, those are the types of things that kind of push you over the edge more than the age. Um, and so I would say that, you know, those are some of the things we, we, we definitely um, think about. But an absolute age cutoff, I, I don't think our work pushed us in that direction, and I, I don't know that anyone necessarily can or should go in that direction, whether it be for GBM or even other neurosurgical procedures. I would, I would have to agree with you on that. I think I think that that's a very good point that you raised. I would also say, you know, particularly in our in our neighborhood where we practice, we see many patients who are, you know, even in their 90s and they look like they're 70 or 60 and they're very functional and active and going to the gym and, and still working. And so I think you have to take that into perspective as well, taking a look at their Karnofsky score and just their independence level and see how they are doing uh, in conjunction with their comorbidities and their age, et cetera. So that's a really good point, but I agree. I, I don't think we necessarily should look for a cutoff and would rather look for these factors that you so nicely delineated in your paper. And I think the other uh, – thank you. I appreciate that. The other um... – consideration, um, at least in my practice, um, I usually, when somebody is like, look, I mean, I hear, I've, I know what you're saying, and, and, I, and I, we do discuss the likely diagnosis with them, and if somebody says, you know, I, I even, if, yeah, I, I don't want to do this because I don't want to go through chemo and radiation, I usually try to recommend at least a biopsy because, you know, you do this often enough and there is a, you know, 0.1% diagnostic error rate where something looks like a GBM and it turns out not to be. And I, I do think that the peace of mind of a diagnosis, if it were my family member, even if they were to go to palliative care right afterwards, it has some value because it, putting a needle in and learning that it's lymphoma or tumefactive MS 
granted that is exceedingly rare with the modern imaging quality we get, would, is still a life-changing piece of information. And I personally would feel guilty telling someone that they're likely to have a GBM and then having them walk away without at least undergoing a diagnostic procedure like a biopsy. Uh, I want to thank the faculty. That was a very wonderful discussion. Um, Dr. Agi, I was very interested when you pointed out uh, the ageism that kind of exists in all our decision-making, but we kind of don't call it out. Your paper has shown that the elderly people don't get that as much treatment in, in some of the aspects. What is the uh, take-home message you want for our listeners in one or two sentences to take, that the message you want them to take away from your paper? I would say that, you know, we alluded to this earlier that um, even though the paper itself is, is a, the paper was about optimizing the care of the elderly patients, and I think although all these patients share in common one and only one thing, which is their age, um, it's a very heterogeneous patient group, and that was the take-home message from this paper was that decision-making for the elderly, much like the young, is multifactorial, but it's particularly true in older patients because they're likely to check or not check a variety of boxes such as comorbidities, tumor size, and those need to be accounted for. There is no absolute age cutoff when deciding whether to perform a craniotomy or not. It's a, it's a complicated uh, decision tree, and hopefully this paper sheds some light into, into that decision-making that can help others. But I'm, I certainly recognize that it's just a start in what will hopefully be a, a series of um, studies ultimately getting in the prospective direction to better help this population. Wonderful. Thank you. I want to thank the faculty, Dr. Agi, Dr. Bakudarian, and Dr. Hanif for our discussion of this paper, and I also thank our listeners. This concludes the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast.